Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends. Giselle Donnelly, I also work at AEI and. Yulia Zoza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why, why those matter to the United States. Special guest today is Major General Julian Berdila, the Chief of Romania's Land Forces. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on the podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. General, I'm... It is fair to say that in the American and, and Western conversation about the war in Ukraine, Romania has has oftentimes suffered from you know being erased in 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 some sense. And and you know one very sort of explicit and and literal example was was in June when the Romanian president visited Kiev alongside three um, Western European leaders and in the FT and many other outlets. His picture was sort of cropped out of, 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 of the group photo with President Zelensky. Um, but it is also um, true that I mean, Romania has been stepping up in major ways, trying to help Ukraine, both in terms of uh, humanitarian assistance, both in terms of welcoming um, Ukrainian refugees, and also in serving as a major hub for supplies of military assistance, and also providing its own military assistance to, to the Ukrainians. So maybe for, for, for the benefit of our American listeners, it might be useful to walk us briefly through, you know, what has lied at the heart of these of, of these Romanian efforts over these past months and, and how how significant they were, uh, and also, you know, how strongly they, they commanded the support of the of the Romanian public. Well, first of all, the, the role of Black Sea region becoming more and more relevant for not just the transatlantic partnership, but for every ally and partner on the Eastern Front Line. And, and to the point, especially after 2014 and even pre-2014, the, the toxic strategy of Russia was uh, becoming so uh, visible uh, that the region brought this value added to, to our uh, security culture to the to the means and ways that we're preparing, especially in the military domain. Um, and finally, we we ended up with a consolidated presence now in the context uh, of the alliance, but also bilaterally. We do have more troops present in Romania, especially from, from allies uh, in the, like I said, NATO framework, but also from the U.S. Uh, I, can, I can say that post-Madrid summit, there's a uh, brigade combat team in the land domain. There was a brigade combat team uh, from U.S. present in Romania, deployed there with headquarters and, uh, and uh, one of the battalions. The uh, 101st uh, Division headquarters is, is also present in Romania, training, um, determined interoperability opportunities, and basically synchronizing the area of responsibility together with Romania with allies. So, and, and I'm trying to be so short in how vast and, and various the the pool of forces and capabilities is now in, in Romania and the region. But the second point we're, we're looking at for when we consider the relevancy of Romania for, for the uh, security in the Black Sea region is connectivity between cause and effects in the Black Sea and cause and effects into, into the Balkans. And that's a, that's a line of connectivity that is important and relevant for, for Romania because it helps understand what a 316 uh, security environment is for an for an allied member like Romania and other allies in, in the region too. 
So if you can see this from east to west, that's a that's a foundation of what we consider to be relevant in the, in the Black Sea region. The second point is we're looking north to south to the coherence and convergence between all the NATO uh, measures, uh, having as 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 we were having strategies, especially consolidated now with the war in Ukraine. And Poland, Romania, Turkey, other allies and partners are all contributing to. Like I said, this cross of north to south and east to west relevancy that we bring in the region. Um, so, so, so in short, I think uh, Romania's elevated uh, responsibility in the region is, is uh, it's obvious. It's more capacitated recently. Um, we should say the Romanian president announced already a 2.5% starting with 2023 for, for, uh, for the defense budget. So coming from 2% to 25 that's already... Assuming that, uh, like I said, that responsibility in the region, especially when it comes to uh, to the resources allocated to that. You know, it, it is certainly true that, as Delabor pointed out, American and Western public opinion has not paid due attention to Romania through the years. But that is absolutely not true of the U.S. military. Romania has been an important partner not only in recent years, but through all the years of the deployments to the Middle East for the post 9-11 uh, operations. And I can even remember in the late 1990s, uh, preparing a study of uh, possible uh, basing options for American forces in both Romania and Bulgaria. Um, so the idea of you know, a greater NATO and American presence on the southern flank of the Eastern Front uh, has been discussed in military circles for, for quite some time. And uh, like I say, the, the partnership that the Romanians and the help that the Romanians have given to uh, US forces for decades now is, is quite striking. At the same time, we don't seem to be able to sort of get across th that initial threshold of uh, establishing the kind of posture or basing an overall defense cooperation that one would like. Do you think that we're getting closer to that crossover point where longer term planning and, and the kinds of things that are really necessary to build a force and to build an alliance are really in prospect? Well, I'll, I'll take it step, step by step. And I think the first responsibility is the Article 3. So it's, it's on the Romanians to determine what is the sufficient and optimized volume of the force, the capability force packages that, that can provide that successful set of conditions for the national defense. And, and I'm talking predominantly on the land domain where, where, yes, it is back. It is more relevant today now, saying that a lot of the, of the, uh, uh, the Russian doctrine is, is predominantly coming from land. Parenthesis, well, we all saw the, the relevancy of having armored units and how to use that. Yes, the Russian doctrine failed massively in using combined arms and actually being trained for that because a lot of armor was destroyed. Anyhow, closing parenthesis, but again, I think the, the first layer of this consolidated uh, military instrument of power is, is um, Article 3. So we need to, Romanians need to be responsible, commit more resources, make sure the plan works, it's feasible. And it's got the industrial base ready to support and regenerate the resources in this case of conflict. Uh, number two is obviously the, the strong, very durable strategic partnership that we have with the U.S. And on the, in the military domain, we're, we're 
we're looking at almost two decades of, of participation to operations of Iraq and Afghanistan. So stability and support operations that develop a military partnership, not just in the human environment where a lot of soldiers, you know, non-commissioned officers, officers were actually friends now because, because of working together in theaters and operations, but it's also the standards for logistics for some of the equipment, uh, interoperable uh, requirements for acquisition. So so there's a very much institution of interoperability with the U.S. because of uh, at least um, the strategic partnership in the last 20 years of uh, cooperation and things of operation. Coming out of that is with the consolidated presence that I mentioned. Um, now the, the focus is how do we synchronize the plans to the principle, well, we need to win tonight. So this is not this is not looking for the next 10 years, but this is looking at a very immediate responses to crisis. If that happens, uh, how do we integrate and how do we fight tonight? And this is an operational partnership with U.S. units. And I mentioned it's out there in the field. It's training together, is bringing U.S. units and Romanian units to train even um, in more diverse scenarios, uh, but also uh, they're living in an operational environment rather than just just for training for two weeks or a month and then going back. So the rotational concept of deploying U.S. forces to Southeastern Europe, and especially in Romania, really matters. Now, and, I, and, I, and I'll close with uh, the point that you made, if, if we're, we're clear on how much or how many U.S. forces and how much posture. Well, I think we're getting close to that. If I were to say for land, the eastern flank is obviously a multi-core level fight. That means a multi-three-star level headquarters, but they're also the, the, the entire volume of those. To, to that consequence, that means at least a division in the southeastern part of Romania. That's that's what the plan uh, should should look like, and that's what all should targeting for synchronization but again this is this is my my estimate of how much sufficient and optimized force level i need for the plan to exit i want to take this maybe um, a step into the same direction but a little bit broader Um, and to contextualize romania has been fighting really hard for many years now particularly since 2014 to sort of upload the Black Sea as a priority for NATO. Um, we had um, the the advantage, the strategic advantage that long before NATO sort of woke up to the Russian aggression, um, the United States, as Giselle and, and you were alluding to, was there for a long time and was sort of the Western presence that of the United States in Romania that um, was any um, any cornerstone of um, strategic thinking, Western strategic thinking um, in the region. Then 2022 came along with a full-scale invasion of, um, of Ukraine. And in this context, Romania for several years had been either directly publicly or um, behind closed doors, um, arguing that we need one flank um, and we also need in the uh, Black Sea region enhanced forward presence, not just tailored forward presence. And we got some of that. And for the first time, we see a commitment beyond the United States, particularly through France, um, to, uh, to invest into regional deterrence, 
with um, an increased uh, military uh, support, direct military support from France. Um, and there's a lot of that in the news. So I'm wondering if you can talk us through your understanding how 2022 changed Western and overall NATO strategic views of the Black Sea region, and whether really in your understanding this where we are right now with the adjustments um, on the eastern flank of NATO, if that is um, sufficient or um, Romania is actually looking for a lot more when it comes to particularly um, investments and presence of um, Western NATO member states beyond, um, beyond the United States? First of all, we have to realize that Yes, this is probably a decade of uh, Russian strategy development for not just the Black Sea region, but the entire, their Western front line already. So a lot of the measures came initially to, to, uh, to be recognized by allies in some way or, or manner. And, and uh, let's remember the inception of the EFP in the, in the Baltic region, uh, where the Ford presence, the enhanced Ford presence, all the measures, the Taylor Ford presence, was addressing part of that, obviously not to the level to which Russia was investing in toxic strategy for, for uh, its, its Western part. So I think it took some some maturity to recognize what is the set of means and ways to really take additional points before 2014. Now, as Russia's strategy became more toxic and more visible, yes, you're right, Romania became especially more vocal with some of the allies in the region to, to mention that. And the Black Sea region is becoming uh, almost like, like an opportunity for Russia to use the Black Sea as a force projected platform for its own security interests. And this is how, in the context of the Montreux Convention um, and some, some of those consequences, Russia still projecting through Bosphorus a lot of the vectors for, to implement its strategic objectives in, in the Middle East and even in North Africa. So th this is this is a gradual approach for Russia to to recertify its its uh, toxic strategy and to, to go back to the to the desired end state of becoming you know an empire or whatever ever the first power is. Um, again it was it was crazy to see this uh, this coming back to Russia. Now the salute it's still there because there, there are at least two or three initiatives that I know, including the NATO concept, taking into consideration the Black Sea region strategy. But also recently, there's a draft in the U.S. Congress on the on the Black Sea region strategy. So I think I think we came to the point where it's not just uh, policy departments talking uh, solutions, but also the or or the the military planners doing uh, force integration and doing force posture. But it's also the legislators that are starting to realize, hey, this needs to be mechanized better to the point of objectives and ends, okay, means and ways on both sides. And it's not addressing just Romania, it's addressing the entire Black Sea region. So, uh, yes, I think we started to, to with, with a lower speed, let's put it this way. So we were, we were less attentive, we're paying attention to the Black Sea region, not in the detriment of the Baltic. Uh, at that point, the Baltics was... was perceived as the center of gravity of the alliance. And that's why they, they consolidated more there. The Sablaki gap and the risk to to, uh, to fail deterrence and defense was was uh, probably pertinent to uh, for that region. But like I said, in the end, coherence, uh, I think I think it's in it's in uh, in practice and in reality. Convergence, force convergence also too. So you have not just the presence, but integration of forces and plans. That's a that's a huge goal for the entire Eastern Front.
I wonder um, if if we could maybe sort of zoom on the Romanian situation in particular, away from from the sort of broader NATO context. So you have been uh, the the chief of the Romanian Land Forces staff for two and a half years now. I wonder if you could sort of expand a little bit on the role played specifically by the Romanian Land Forces in promoting regional stability and also in how your own thinking and calculus has changed after February 24. What sort of changes were undertook within Romania, within you know, within the within the military by you and your colleagues in response to to this new new environment and you know how you know perhaps some of the constraints you might have faced earlier have been you know changed as a as a, as a result of this Russian invasion. And if I can just uh, add a footnote to that. I know you're here for the uh, annual Association of the United States Army uh, meeting. So it, it makes me wonder what your plans for modernization are of the land forces. The, the other Eastern European nation, the Poles most particularly, are investing quite a bit. And Romania is buying F-16s. But I haven't heard too much about land force modernization. So I want to squeeze that in on top of Dalibor's question, if I could. Very, very important question. So, so, so first, for, for land forces, a little bit of the recent past and what, what the dynamics was, was for, uh, to be considered for force modernization and, and, and the redness levels of the land force. So, like I said, we're decades of counterinsurgency um, and a lot of the, the mission set dedicated to counterinsurgency and stability support operations under that um, model and shaped the, the land forces packages towards training. Training centers changed to that doctrine. Force packages, you know, the readiness, the, the selection, even the modernization for most of the platforms we have you know, was 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 dedicated to executing missions and, and inside that doctrine with it partners like U.S. and other coalition or allied members. And at the same time, here comes COVID. Okay, so you got, you got two years of COVID. Um, the main, one of the main critical capabilities of land forces, it's its density and distribution to the national territory. So if you really want to activate a network in crisis, you have this advantage for the land forces of being distributed to multiple uh, garrisons. So, so we capitalize on that. Um, and in distribution of, of medical aid and uh, medical uh, supply chains and, and actually becoming minor or micro hubs for integrating resources to fight COVID, Army was, was, was critical in that. Of course, together with the other services. So that's, that's another variable that came into, into play when most of the land forces. Another important change was... Um, here comes NATO with, with a new set of military capabilities and the, and the planning for that. The capability targets changed a little bit, and we had to consider or reconsider uh, force structure and how we organize from an ally concept of, of force structure. Um, but also the access to, like I said, to, to, to more regional plans. And to that point, Romania took the responsibility to, to fund and, and um, provide resources to, to, to have an operational multinational core southeast multinational division southeast and multinational brigade southeast so it's it's a backbone of multinational headquarters and force volume dedicated to to the uh, nato mission set but also led in terms of how many or what resources were provided to uh, to have the full operational capability of the headquarters from Romania. Um, i can tell you that the the cis system so the communication information system for multinational division southeast which was a host nation uh, provided resource 
60 million euros. Uh, one of the state of the arts. Uh, uh, so it does cost when when you uh, when you change the land forces. And and again, that may be another factor to recognize. Land forces are, are, are still massive, massive because they rely on on using the operational terrain, a variety of capabilities, maneuver, armor, air defense, artillery, logistics, community. So it's a, it's, it's a large package of capabilities inside one unit. Romania, to me, it's it's uh, roughly 35,000 uh, troops under my command. So that's that's what uh, uh, my forces represent for Romania. Um, last but not least, the mission AUSA and, and uh, the modernization. We, we, good news was, um, we entered a cycle changing the arsenal for around 2040, 2030, 24. So the army of 2040 represented the strategy for, for us to, found, to, to, to build a foundation since the 2% uh, GDP budget for defense was, was declared. So you know, this, this was back five years ago um, when the political consensus built the resources to commit around on, on the 2% number, which it's, it's, it's a strong declaration, but it's for us, for the military, that means how do you mechanize that? Well, how do you transform? And for the land forces, um, long-range precision fires, um, ISR assets, um, logistics, new logistics, especially the, the trucks and the, and the armor to the trucks. There's a huge attention paid to the requirement of the airland battle. And I'll mention multi-role helicopters here, but, but to a point, we, we work to, uh, with the Air, our Air Force colleagues to... to to still have that operation with Romanian helicopters from the air. Now, HIMARS is the jewel of land forces modernization. You mentioned, okay, maybe it's not too visible on the land, but we just we just uh, produced uh, full operational capability of the first battery. We fired last uh, this summer on all, one of our training centers. It's a successful project for us. Uh, and HIMARS, as you know, it's becoming the, the beast of... Uh, of uh, it's always Hamars o'clock someplace, right? That's the truth. So, <laughs> so it, was, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a good operational relevancy for Romanian land forces to provide these, this of, of the respective uh, Hamars brigade. Um, so we should be able to have three battalions by, by 24 and the full operational capability of that brigade by, by 2024. There are some delays, uh, and obviously because of the supporting effort for Ukraine or some delays of, of the uh, other parts of the program. But in calendar, we're, we're, we're good with, with HIMARS. I'll mention that it does not sit in the arsenal of the land forces. In the U.S. Army, you have Patriot with the U.S. Army. For us, you have Patriot with, with the Air Force. So, But that's another capability. F-16, you mentioned it. I think it comes to, to the right time and place. Romania just uh, approached the second and third uh, squadron of F-16, uh, of, of acquisitioning that, that part. So it is building to, to a new arsenal that opens capabilities beyond 2030. Does it, does it move to the, to the speed of relevancy and the, the, uh, the force that should be addressed in the region because of the Russian threat? Maybe not. And that's why we integrate other capabilities of NATO or including the U.S. Uh, presence in there. So you will never be able to do it alone, not to the level of each na nation to, to, be, to be facing the force volumes that Russia can put to, to threaten, let's say, in the, in the land office. But because of that composition of, of NATO allies and partners, and especially high technology weapons, you can you can uh, you can respond to a strategy like that.
I'm very glad that you mentioned the high Mars that now everybody talks about um, and Romania has been um, um, buying for a while as well as the Patriot systems. And you also mentioned a bit earlier the U.S. Black Sea strategy. Um, the Congress is tasking the White House for a Black Sea strategy and fitting into that um, with several conversations that we've had on the podcast and, and offline um, is the thinking behind grand U.S strategy with the national security strategy strategy that just came out. Um, I've only had time to skim through it, but as um, as none of us is surprised, um, Europe um, and the eastern flank play a crucial role. And I know you cannot tell us um, that much about war scenarios in terms of Romanian um, defense planning, but I want to ask you the other way around. Um, if um, basically, what is your Christmas wish list um, as we're focusing with um, here in the United States more on long term strategic planning and Romania has been prioritizing buying um, uh, American high tech capabilities in the context of now everybody on the eastern flank sort of racing to re um, to replace um, Soviet era weapons help the Ukrainians and in the meantime get um, get new technology which seems to be as the Ukrainians pro are proving crucial what is your um, if you had an unlimited budget and unlimited political mm -hmm. will what is your um, Christmas wish list um, for the Romanian land forces what would you prioritize in terms of acquisitions for the long term first of all I'm glad you know, even with a toxic strategy, Russia uh, cannot deny the existence of Santa Claus. So, uh, <laughs> thank you for, for thank you for using this. In well, terms of, uh, you're in the, you're in the toy store today, so you might as well know, you know, uh, go visit Santa while you can. I know, I know, and uh, go back seriously again um, for, for the land commander and budget. Of course, the wish list is is I I should say huge. Because, it, like, like I mentioned, it's a vast array of capabilities that that, that you need to synchronize. And the land fight, the air land battle, is, is very very complex. Um, now there there are some old and some some new capabilities that are still there in the battlefield. So we had a tendency to kind of like disregard armor. Well, that's not true. Armor remained and it's still relevant, but the, the composite complex between anti-armor and armor. It remains a pillar of building capabilities in, in Romania. And, and if you were to ask me, okay, for, for this example, I want more tow missiles. I want more anti-tank guided. Okay, I want more training for that. And I want the stockpiling for the capacity to regenerate to certain levels. Um, Shorad and so short range air defense and very short range. This is the same same approach. And ISR, and, including counter UAS. We talked even here at the UAS, uh, USA on the primacy of the counter US. I think command and control system is important for, for the land forces as the density of combat contributors to the operations. It's, it's large for the land force. Also, the mobility is large, so that, that gives you also a, a wish list for Santa Claus of CIS system. How do you provide and how to move it in, in warring Ukraine? The C-2 moved from, from being a land-based C-2 to a satellite, so to a space-based C-2. Well, can, how can I afford that? And what's what's the frequency management with for the satellite network for the land forces to be able to operate? So it's a long wish list, and I'm sure Santa is going to 
respond to some of that, but uh, I think the multi-annual approach from the land forces is the right one. So Santa can say, hey, you need to get, I, I can get you this in 2022, but you probably need to wait two or three more years for this and that. Still, I'll just wait. Um, now, another point to this is we need to ask ourselves how expensive national defense and collective defense become in the context of the Russian threat. I mean, what's, what, what is it? Do we need to optimize to, to a different percentage of the GDP? Do we need to politically address that, that, that end and, and to publicly explain it and to reprioritize societies for that? Uh, what about the industrial base? I mean, you can, you can have the money, but if you go there today, you can't spend uh, it. You, it's not just you can't spend it. it the, the industrial base does not have the capacity right. to provide the numbers of the requirements. And, and it's fair enough. I mean, they're saying this is too large to support the Ukrainians, but also to support the readiness recovery from from a, a supply perspective. So there, there, there are issues out there. They're not dilemmas. I think we're all working towards that. But the advantage is you do have a platform of, of partnering and dialogue. And that's why I salute again the Black Sea strategy because it addresses at least three pillars in there. One is the military that that I can I can contribute. And oh by the way, it's mentioned the three-star level headquarters uh, as as a joint level headquarters, a unique capability to, to synchronize command and control. Now I'll stop here because I'm, I'm sure Santa Claus is not going to be patient enough to you you have to get out and uh find out where his station is, but you know, before he shuts down. I, I would like to ask you one last sort of analytical question about the Ukraine conflict that we've seen come up in the last few days, really, uh, but has been there present uh, all along. And that is the question of missile and air defenses for cities. You know, particularly as the Russians have failed on the tactical battlefield. And despite the you know, very expensive cost of the munitions they're using to, you know, to, as terror weapons, essentially, to, to strike Ukrainian cities, and occasionally they'll hit a power plant uh, you know, instead of a kindergarten or something like that. But um, it's, it's hard to know how to think about that. Is it really, are the Russians playing a losing game because the value of the destruction that they reap doesn't offset the cost of, of what it costs to, to strike, make those strikes? Or is it necessary? I mean, the Ukrainians are pretty insistent that they, and although they've been pretty successful, uh, if we were to believe their statistics about the number of intercepts that they've had in the last couple of days. You know, from a Ukrainian perspective and just your own analytical perspective, how would you code that threat? Is it something that's worth a lot of investment or, or less than that? Yeah, that? That's a challenge for us too. That we, we war game some of those scenarios or parts of scenarios uh, of urban centers being attacked. Uh, and of course, uh, we're very much concerned with the recent uh, manifestations of, of that kind of nature for Russia. It's difficult to prioritize, at least for the military instrument, because first, and I'm again, within the land domain, you, you, you're integrating cupolas, umbrellas of air defense for your own uh, brigades and divisions. One, two, you have a list of critical infrastructure recognized and legitimized uh, the, the national uh, level, different plans and, and, and bridges and 
other types of, of let's say, high payoff targets that you need to protect in case of a bear attack. Um, with the density of urban centers and, and some of other major uh, uh, civilian communities, there's no way you can defend all of this. So first, it's the full of resources and capabilities in the interagency. So we need to address the, the gendarmes and maybe some to, to bring back the territorial defenses that we used to have or parts of that. Um, there, there are countries who are really approaching uh, partial reserve capabilities uh, for that or uh, even not conscripts, but, but a volunteer uh, force reservists to do a composite capability for air defense. Um, but I think also we need to invest into the citizens' culture of the new security environment. Unless, unless you go back to the citizen and try to explain why missile bunkers or missile defense bunkers are, are, are needed, why local authorities invest in that, why we need to have crisis management procedures and, and, and uh, rehearsals towards that. So it was like, it was like a, uh, you give FEMA, CUS, a pillar to address of, of what's civil defense um, in case of that. And, and of course, US is kind of far away from that distance or trajectory of manifestation. But, but for the Eastern Front countries, we need to address that. We need to, to grow the awareness of the, of the citizen that this uh, goes from from a challenge to a threat to na not just national interest but but it's the it's the defense of, of every citizen and including the urban centers the last but not least is uh, how do you bring how do you bring that operational capability into the urban center? who command who does c2 command and control they give it to the interior is this an emergency management agency that does that or do you give it to the free and integrate your missile defense the point you made about, uh, I mean, the role of the citizenry in all this, I think, is is just so so important and has been greatly underrated. Strikes me uh, in in Western nations for a long time. Thank you so much for your time today, General. From Pelburo Hajj, Ezizel Danley, and Yulia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Many thanks to our special guest today, Major General Julian Berdila. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. I should also let you know that our fortnightly Eastern Front newsletter is now live. You can sign up for the newsletter through the link, which is included in the show notes. You'll get uh, every other week an update of recent episodes, exclusive Q&A with the three of us, uh, your hosts, that is, and you'll stay up to date with the most recent op-eds and articles uh, on security challenges facing the Eastern Front, written by the three of us. Once again, um, if you enjoy, enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye. Thank you so much. Goodbye.